This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hi, everybody. My name is Fraser Kane, and I am the publisher of Universe Today, and this is your weekly space hangout for July 12th, 2012. Uh, this week, we've got a bunch of stories for you in my text thing. We got, we're going to report on Pluto's new moon. We're going to report on uh, New Horizons doing science in its sleep. Uh, the Southern Polar Vortex on Titan, whatever Alan wants to talk about. <laughs> Pluto! Also wants to talk about Pluto. It's going to be very Pluto special. And we have a very special guest this week. We've got Mark Showalter from the SETI Institute, and you're also involved in the, uh, in the Pluto discovery. So this is going to be a, uh, it's going to be a big Pluto week. This is great. I hope Alan Stern is watching. Um, all right, cool. So why don't we get started? So the big news, of course, is the Pluto is the oh, sorry, the people here in this hangout. I apologize. Man, focus, Fraser. Um, so we've got Alan Boyle from MSNBC's Cosmic Log. We've got uh, Amy Sher Title from Vintage Space. We've got Jason Major from Lights in the Dark. We've got Mike Wall from Space.com, and our special guest this week is Mark Scholter from SETI Institute. Um, and we've, we had Robert Nemiroff from our picture of the day. Oh, you know what? I don't see you. Um, I see me. Does anyone else see me? I see you. I will just have faith then that <laughs> Robert Nemiroff is yeah. here with us. Uh, Always a body voice in my hangout. We're, we're not having a very technically happy day today. I will apologize in advance for that, all of the things that are about to go wrong. Um, all right, well, let's get started then. The big news, of course, is Pluto is the discovery of, uh, of a new moon on Pluto, and I thought I would have uh, Mike Wall give us the intro on this. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, I probably shouldn't be saying anything. Mark should probably be the one talking about this stuff. Mark. Because he was, like, yeah, he really involved with all this. But um, sure. just, just, yeah, just to sort of give the, like, sort of basics of it, um, yeah, I mean, Pluto now has at least five moons, we have, we have learned because actually yesterday scientists announced that um, they, they found another small moon around Pluto. Hubble Space Telescope photos picked it up. It's a little guy. It's about 6 to, to 15 miles wide. Um, and it's now it's called P5 for now, but that will probably change at some point in the future. And yeah, yeah scientists were, like, have been scanning this and just with, with the Space Telescope Hubble to, um, to try to see what all is out there in the system because actually they've got a spacecraft that's going to fly by Pluto in 2015, and it's called New, the, the New Horizons spacecraft. And they're a little bit concerned about what the system holds, because that spacecraft is going to be going really fast, and they, they want to know what, what kind of debris it might encounter. And if there are more moons, then there's probably more debris out there, because moons like actually generate debris when they're struck by by other space rocks. And so this, this, is, this is all part of um, a, a big campaign to like both actually learn about the Pluto system and see what the spacecraft is is going to encounter when it gets there. And so yeah, it's it's really exciting. It just it, it sort of shows um, that we really don't know that much about the outer solar system. There's still a lot more to learn. I'm sure Mark could could speak more to that. Um, and yeah, I mean it's it's basically there 
like there are some other sidelights too, you know, when you say you find another moon around Pluto, then, then you automatically get people saying, well, if it has five moons now, shouldn't it be a planet? Should it have been demoted to dwarf planet? All that stuff. So that's, yeah, that's an inevitable sidelight of a discovery like this. But, but I think that this just shows that, yeah, the outer solar system is a very complex and interesting place that we don't know that much about, and we're continuing to learn more and more about it. And um, it's really interesting that we're learning all this stuff about Pluto, and we're just sort of training instruments on Pluto, but there's so many other objects out there that we haven't been looking at. And so, I mean, there are all sorts of objects out there that might be just as interesting, just as strange as the Pluto system. We just, it's going to take a long time to figure it all out because these things are so far away, they're so dim, we don't have the manpower or the instruments here to investigate them all in detail. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's basically, I mean, the quick and dirty story of P5, and I'll all right. I guess, turn it over to, to Mark or to Alan if they want to talk more about it. Well, let's definitely get Mark to talk about it. Mark, so, what's your, so what was your role in this discovery? Yeah, so, well, I am, I guess, the discoverer. I found it on Saturday, so this has been kind of a, an adventure of uh, the last five days or so, getting this all tied up and, uh, and out there for everybody to know about it. Uh, we got data. We've been having this observing program on Hubble. It is just finished. It finished on Monday, in fact. That was our last set of observations. But this was um, a lot of uh, effort in the in the planning of it. We very closely, New Horizons Project and uh, the Space Telescope Institute worked very closely to make this all happen. They were very, very generous with their, their time and their uh, resources to enable us to essentially uh, cherry pick the exact perfect observing opportunities that we would have. And, uh, and then we essentially put together an observing plan that would be about as sensitive as it could possibly be in searching for small moons and possibly dust rings or the other kinds of things that would potentially be of interest to and in particular dangerous to uh, New Horizons, which by the way gets there, I think it's the 14th, so two days from now it'll be uh, three years out from Pluto. Um, so. Uh, at this point, we've got the data all in hand. It's a gorgeous data set. We're very, very excited by it. And it was on Saturday that I was looking at essentially one of the last set of observations we're going to get. And uh, I throw all my data into a big processing algorithm that I have set up in the last year or so that uh, sort of subtracts out the glare of Pluto and removes all the background stars and just does a bunch of things that I figured out how to do in order to see what little dots uh, or little rings might still be left behind. And when I did that on Saturday, this moon, it, I will say it jumped out. It was, um, it was not subtle in the data at all. It's, uh, it's a quite a bit smaller than P4, which is the moon we found last year, about half as bright, in fact. And it's closer to Pluto, which is why probably we didn't see it last year. It's just that we weren't quite as good at sort of digging out in the noise that's immediately surrounding Pluto. And in all that work, I had a set of three images that were each a, a full Hubble orbit of integration, that's about 35 minutes of data all added together. So we take three 35-minute exposures, we add them up, and we make a little movie, and there's this dot moving along the screen that uh, caught my eye very quickly. And I was very quickly on the phone with uh, Alan and uh, some other of my coworkers on this project. And you know, some, yesterday we were able to announce the, announce the discovery. Well, I was muted. That, that is awesome news. So, uh, I mean, how long would you say you guys had been sort of had been gathering data on Hubble to, to, to find this moon? 
Yeah, it. Uh, I mean, I guess the story kind of started last year when I and a, fr a colleague, Doug Hamilton, at the University of Maryland. Excuse me, I'm being interrupted by my computer. Uh, uh, let's see. Um, sorry about that. There we go. Uh, okay, another one of the distractions of this high-tech world we're in. Um, well, you know what? Why don't we start again? Because my question was terrible. So why don't we start again? I'll ask a better question, <laughs> which oh, came to mind. Which is, so did you have any suspicion that there was going to be more moons? Was this just a hunch, or did you just book time on the Hubble telescope and just search for moons because there's probably more because they've already found four? Uh, it's kind of in, kind of both of those things. I mean, honestly, what what came out of last year's discovery was this recognition, and we probably should have had it sooner, that we really don't know very much about Pluto, and this spacecraft is going to pass through the system at 15 kilometers per second. Uh, luckily, they planned ahead, and they covered this thing with, with Kevlar. Basically, it's, it's got a bulletproof covering, and that means we could hit something, you know, a dust moat wouldn't, wouldn't be a hazard to the spacecraft, but something the size of a BB, for example, could be completely lethal to the spacecraft. And if you kill New Horizons when it gets to Pluto, you lose everything because it's saving all the data on board and shipping it down afterwards. So it's not like we would get half the data if it made it to Pluto and then, and then die. We would lose everything. So, uh, so realizing that we didn't know as much about the system as we should, we uh, worked with the Space Telescope Institute to get, as I said, this really beautiful set of data that is designed in part to look for small moons and for dust rings. The idea of with a small moon is that you're not going to hit a moon. It's very, very unlikely. But these small moons uh, often have dust rings around them. So anything like that that's in very close to the planet is where we're most concerned. The object we found is a fair distance outside the sort of core Charon uh, Pluto system. And uh, so we won't really need to worry about that as, a, as, a, as a, an impact hazard. But uh, it's nice to know it's there. So finding new science targets is a, is a fringe benefit of a project that is really devoted toward understanding what kind of danger New Horizons is in. New Horizons does have a last opportunity this year to plan an alternative trajectory. Uh, they've got a target point that is basically near Pluto uh, on the opposite side from Karen. And that's the scientifically optimal location. And that's where we want to go. But if there is anything at all remotely dangerous about that location, we can decide even 10 days before we get to Pluto to, to jump to a different target point. But we have to plan that target point this year. So we want to know what's there. And that's what we're looking for. Right. And so the real objective here is that you might not be able to see objects that you're going to impact with, but a, a small moon might be carrying a lot of debris in its region. And it sort of designates an area that you would really want to avoid. So. Right. So there's a real value to this. Are you are you done sort of observations between now and when New Horizons is going to be reaching Pluto? Is there going to be a point where you you can no longer make observations that will make any kind of impact because it's too late to turn the trajectory of the spacecraft? Yeah, change it. Don't have make any kind of uh, you know collision, any kind of explosion. Well, so. Uh, the best opportunities for observing Pluto come around once a year, around June, because that's when Pluto is at opposition, Sun, Earth, Pluto being roughly aligned at that point. So we do not have any more observations planned this year. We could always propose and maybe get some more time next year. And as a scientific target now, Pluto remains exceedingly interesting. And we will certainly want to uh, get some more data as scientists. But the 
data that we will use to assess the hazard, the threat to the New Horizons spacecraft is all on the ground now. This is what we've got to work with. And we'll be working with that over the next month or two to figure out what exactly it says. If there is a P6 or a P7, um, I would think in the next month or two you'll be hearing about them. Uh, they'll be presumably a bit smaller than P4 and P5 at this point, but there could be little little blips out there, and we just can't say they're not there yet. So uh, that's part of our study. Any rings, of course, we'll also be uh, looking for. Well, after after you that, announce any of those right now, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be glad to uh, to help get the word out for you right now if you've discovered P6 and P7. That's what you're, that's what you're <laughs> Sorry, I can't. I can't say, but in fact, there isn't. Anyway. Yeah, I know. I understand. I understand how this works. Um, don't worry, this, it's just us and our, and our few hundred friends. Um, okay, great. Well, that, that's fantastic news, and thank you very much. Uh, now, I've got a few questions. Uh, um, I'm not sure what your time is like. I know you're busy right now. Um, so, so what I thought I would normally we would sort of stick, wait to the end and take in some questions from the, from the viewers, but, but I think right now, you know, we'll get as many questions as we can and sort of wrap this phase up, and then you're free to, to, to move on to, with your work and, the, and finding more moons and rings. So um, a couple of questions for you. Yeah. Uh, um, Jeff Borsa wants to know, why is the New Horizons data coming in like you described all at once rather than live, and how will it be received? Well, it's, uh, it comes in essentially every, when you do Hubble observations, you can uh, retrieve them from the archive usually a few hours later. So the data that I was looking at on Saturday afternoon had actually executed on the spacecraft Saturday morning. And the, the reason things are bunched together is just because this is the best season of the year for observing Pluto. It's because Pluto is at its best location in the sky for doing the work that we're doing. And I mean, people don't realize, I mean, the distance to Pluto is so far. It takes so long for the communications to come. You can't just you know, fly it like a, like a video game, it's, you know... Well, we're, talking about, we're talking two things. Uh, the, the spacecraft, you can't fly in real time. But, but the data the coming back from it, yeah. Yeah, but the, the Hubble observations, we still had that sort of canned and in the bag ready to execute a few months ago. Everything has to be stacked up and, you know, they have a, they have a lead time that's required. So we had planned these observations back a few months ago. Now we're getting the, the fruit of that work. I think Jeff was uh, wondering why it is that you store the data during the Pluto flyby and then send it back later. Why don't you send it in real time? Oh, that's because it, this is a spacecraft with no moving parts. And so if you want to gather science, you cannot point your antenna at the Earth at the same time that you're doing that. You just don't have the rotational flexibility that is required. And that was part of how they made the spacecraft very light and uh, and able to get to to Pluto in such a short period of time. It was launched, I believe, in, what, 2006, I think? And uh, so getting there in just these six years or so uh, is pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's kind of amazing to think about the fact that we're only just a few years away now. It feels like I've been reporting on this for my whole professional career. <laughs> yeah, three years is not a long time. No, I know, I know. Um, uh, so uh, this isn't a question, but Eli Mendez uh, notes that it's too bad that New Horizons won't be going into orbit. Uh, yeah, and, yes. You know, and maybe, you know, I think we'll understand why, which is because to get there in a short amount of time, you have to go tremendously fast and zip right past. Right. But uh, mm -hmm. do you think it would be possible down the road to send an orbiter? Orbiters are tricky. The, the reason has to do with... You know, getting to a planet, well, that's part of the job. If you're going to stay in orbit, then you have to stop. 
So the laws of mechanics say you get there at, you know, you're fi moving 15 kilometers per second, and if you don't do anything, you'll just sail on past. So what we're doing is to, to get an orbit around Pluto would be to show up at Pluto moving at about 15 kilometers a second and then slow down to something really very slow because Pluto is not a very massive planet and the orbits around it are very slow. So that takes a lot of retro rockets. It takes a lot of fuel propellant of some sort. Um, if you look at what uh, you know, Cassini did at Saturn or what Juno is about to do at, uh, at Jupiter, these things have very, very big rocket engines and lots of fuel on them. And the very first thing they do when they get to the planet is turn around backwards and jam on the brakes, in effect, by firing retro rockets to slow yourself down so that you end up in orbit. Um, that's, that takes a lot of effort. Well, it's wonderful news, Mark, and we really appreciate you taking the time to jump into this weekly space hangout. It's uh, tremendous, so, so a tremendous accomplishment, and I look forward to the announcements of uh, P6, P7, and the, uh, and the rings. Uh, do what I can. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you're free to go. You can stick around if you want. Um, and we'll, we'll take any more Pluto questions. I know Alan and, uh, and Mike know quite a bit about this as well, so, so thank you very much. Okay. It was great talking to you. Thanks All a lot. Right, thanks, Mark. Uh, well, okay, so then why don't we move on then. Now, Amy, you had uh, some, some related news, which is about uh, New Horizons doing science in its sleep. Yeah, so we've just been talking about New Horizons a little bit, the spacecraft on its way to Pluto. Um, and it's doing some pretty interesting stuff right now. It's in hibernation because, like you said, it's, it's about three years away from the planet, and there's not much for it to do in the meantime. So it was designed to leave one instrument on during its period of hibernation, the student dust collector, or sorry, student dust counter, which is designed to allow the spacecraft to collect data on dust in interplanetary space by measuring impacts as it flies through the solar system's dust, uh, dust disk. But that seemed to the uh, program scientists like a bit of a waste. It's kind of fascinating to have this spacecraft way out there. It's been three decades since we've had an active spacecraft in this area, sort of past Saturn and before Pluto. Um, and we have all this data from Pioneers 10 and 11 and Voyagers 1 and 2. So the team started wondering, what else could we leave on? What else could we be doing with New Horizons while it's in hibernation? So there are two other... Um, Alan Stern, of course, is behind this initiative to get as much science out of this mission as possible. Um, started looking at the possibility of leaving on other instruments during the hibernation period. Um, his picks were the Solar Wind Around Pluto instrument and the Pluto Energetic Particle Spectrometer Science Investigation instrument, which has the great acronym PEPSI. Um, so both SWAP and PEPSI, as they're known, measure charged particles of radiation environment along the spacecraft's trajectory. They sample solar wind protons as they travel away from the sun. They pick up ions that are created by solar wind protons and solar photons interacting with hydrogen and measure ions heavier than helium and ions traveling faster than the solar wind. So this, the possibility of getting all these really in, this interesting solar science from way out between Saturn and Pluto was pretty interesting, but then it became a question of, okay, well, can we do this without ruining everything? Um, of course, this is going to draw off the spacecraft's power. It's going to, are, you know, is the, uh, the dust collector going to interfere with these, or are they going to interfere with the dust collector? Because the idea is to, um, you know, not sacrifice one for the other, but to get more in general. So the team ran a whole bunch of tests, ground tests, uh, three 
multi-day three instrument tests while the spacecraft was in a hibernation last October. And then some some enhanced hibernation cruise tests in January and April, and finally decided that yes, all these things can actually run in hibernation at the same time without interfering with each other, interfering with the spacecraft. And on July 6th, when they shut the spacecraft down, they left these three instruments running. So now we're not only getting really interesting information about the dust disk in the solar system, we're getting a lot of really neat solar measurements that can be added to and sort of complemented by the Voyager and the Pioneer data. So that's pretty neat. I would love to do science in my sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, this, is, this is amazingly efficient. Actually, Alan Stern said that it's called it a, very, a real success story for low-cost outer planetary missions. And it's, it's really interesting to be able to sort of squeeze this much after launch, just kind of add this idea into a mission. I, I find that you can pretty much guarantee on any mission that they're going to end up using that spacecraft for things that they never intended. Yeah. So... Yeah, 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 and so this is a classic example. Yeah, they, you know, you've got the hardware there. It's already out in space. It's just a matter of coming up with some ideas for it. So, yeah. Uh, now, now, Alan, you had some additional stuff on Pluto that you wanted to mention. Oh, uh, yeah. First of all, I got this book here. So uh, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, The Case for Pluto. And so if anyone is really interested in that, that's my one advertisement of the day. <laughs> but uh, one of the questions that that came up is. Uh, you know why is it that uh, Pluto has all these moons, and have they have they found moons? Are there going to be more moons to find? And and the interesting thing about this is, uh, as Mark uh, could tell you, is that they're finding moons at particular uh, resonances uh, in relation to Charon. So there's a really complicated uh, ballet going on here, and that's why all these moons have been able to survive is because. The mechanics are set up so that they stay out of each other's way. Uh, for example, there's a 1 to 4 resonance and 1 to 5 resonance. That means that uh, in the time that it takes uh, Sharon to make one orbit, these other orbits make four or five almost exactly. And that way they're able to kind of stay very stable. And so the interesting thing is that there are a couple of these resonances that they haven't looked at yet for example, 1 to 2 or 1 to 7. And so uh, when Mark and his colleagues look at the data from Hubble, I'm betting that they're going to pay special attention to those particular areas. But it's a very difficult observation to make because you know, you're looking at something that is like the, the separation is the uh, breadth of a hair uh, as seen from yards and yards away. So it, it's a very tough, and, and there may be things there that they just can't detect. Alan, I think, they, uh, I think one of the uh, analogies that was used was that these moons are kind of like a set of Russian nesting dolls. Exactly. Um, you know, all, in their, all in their perfect spots, uh, uh, progressively larger orbits. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's very finely, finely tuned, and that's why they think that these moons were created when, uh, when a couple of big things slammed into each other and resulted in all this debris that eventually coalesced into Pluto and Charon as we know it. And then these other uh, bits are uh, areas of debris that coalesced at these particular resonance points. And so these moons are probably very, very old. It's probably not like they're latecomers to the party. They've been around for a long time. 
And so it illustrates that even though Pluto is a dwarf planet and it doesn't get much respect nowadays, uh, it can keep things in line pretty well. So uh, I, I still don't think you shouldn't underestimate the little guy. And uh, so that's what I wanted to say on Pluto. Uh, and uh, there was uh, something else that came up this week. Uh, there's a big air show in England, the Farnborough Air Show, and uh, there was an, some announcements made uh, related to Virgin Galactic, which uh, is aiming to put tourists into space, and the big news this week is that they're also aiming to put rockets into space, that, that the carrier airplane known as the White Knight 2 can be used to drop rockets and have them launch payloads into space, uh, starting in the 2015 to 2016 time frame. And uh, one of the clients is going to be another one that we've talked about here on the Space Hangout is uh, Planetary Resources, which wants to put these space telescopes into Earth orbit to look around for near-Earth asteroids that would be worth mining. And so you've got this grand convergence of all these weird, far-out uh, space ideas to turn them into reality. And it's really interesting to see that. So I, I wanted to touch on that as well. Now, is there anything that's, that's kind of interesting and clever about this launcher? I mean, you know, that's different from, you know, it's, it's not a big rocket, is it? It's something else. It, it's uh, actually, uh, as opposed to Spaceship Two, which is going to be the tourist uh, craft, th this is uh, more of a conventional rocket, kerosene-powered, uh, air-launched. Uh, a lot of other people are talking about air launch. In fact, there's another venture that billionaire Paul Allen is backing. If you remember, it's a strata launcher, which does a similar thing. It's a huge plane uh, that uh, the same folks who are building things for Virgin Galactic are building for the strata launcher ver venture, and they'll be launching a modified version of a, uh, of a Falcon, uh, SpaceX Falcon rocket. So you're starting to see some competition in that space, and some familiar names are popping up in unfamiliar uh, environments. Now, have you seen the, the, is it the Skylon? I think it's the, it's, it's a... Skylon, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's Another a English, concept. <laughs> yeah, it's an English, uh, I think it's from, from England, and it's a sort of air-breathing uh, aircraft, and then it reaches a certain point, and then it switches to a sort of rocket engine propelled, so it flies up into the air, gets to a certain altitude, and then the rockets kick in, and it actually takes itself up into orbit. So I, I love it. It's a, you know... I love, I watch the animations and just drool and I just think that would just be amazing if that would actually get built, so. Yeah, that's 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 one of the coolest looking spaceships that, that you'd ever see. It looks like it's from the future. It looks like a proper <laughs> rocket ship, you know, like that's the kind of thing that people would be hurtling through the cosmos, exploring other worlds, so yeah. Yeah, we, we just... Uh, went past the eighth anniversary of the Spaceship One first flight into space, and uh, at that time people were talking that uh, the future of space travel was just two years away. And lo and behold, eight years later, it's still two years away. So it's starting to follow figure. fusion powers sort of course, isn't it? That it's always 30 right. years away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I didn't realize that. It's kind of dangerous. Um, so we brought in a. Uh, where we brought in, I guess, a, a special guest for another time, which is, uh, which is Robert Nemiroff from Astronomy Picture of the Day. And Robert was going to show off a bunch of photographs from, that, have, that have been featured in Astronomy Picture of the Day in the last uh, couple, of, couple of days, which is great. Now, if you've never okay. seen Astronomy right. Picture of the Day, uh, you can find, let's do a search for APOD, apod.nasa.gov. 
That's right, HarryPodNASA.gov. Yeah. Um, so I, I was once I was on this this show. It seems like uh, maybe a month or so ago. Yeah. So there's been a lot of interesting pictures since then. So one I wanted to go to little iPad here is June 26, 2012. So in this past month, we've passed the um, summer solstice for the northern hemisphere, and so we had our longest amount of daylight in 24 hours. And so it looks like this. Let me see if I can uh, I can get it for you. There's some reflections there. And uh, what that is, that is a sundial <clears throat> that uh, is, is on a campus in France. And what's cool about this sundial is that it actually lights up with the word solstice on the summer solstice. And uh, so sun, it really looks futuristic, too. So it's a cool-looking device. And one of the reasons why I like it is because many people own sundials, and this is a way that people can participate in space and astronomy even during the day. You can get a sundial or you can look outside for something that can just be a sundial because anything is really a sundial. And uh, so I thought it was really cool that this thing lit up with solstice. And so now I'm thinking that maybe we should get something like this for, for our campus at Michigan Technological University in northern Michigan. So that was an image on June 26. You can't you can see that futuristic looking device. I don't think, after thinking about it, I don't think it has to be so futuristic to actually show up with the word solstice. You can do it more simply, but this thing probably lights up with, uh, well, I know it lights up with the word equinox at, uh, surprisingly, the equinox. Uh, so uh, that was a pretty cool uh, submission that we got. So we couldn't run it on the, on the solstice because we only submitted it afterwards. Uh, let's see. Another one I'd like to go to is... Uh, Okay, let's jump to July 3rd, 2012, and there's a picture of Saturn and Titan, Titan on a string. Oh, Jason went away. Oh, okay, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. What what date was it? I was um no, I, I was going to ask him about it. This is a setup for Jason. So it's oh, July yeah. 3rd, 2012. So it's a really cool picture of Saturn and Titan, and taken from Cassini, which is orbiting Saturn like as we speak. Surprisingly enough. And Jason and, uh, colored it, right? Yeah, so I didn't know that. So I got this from the, East, the European Space Agency's page. Thinking, oh, this is great, but isn't it odd that it didn't appear on the, um, on the Cassini's page or in um, JPL's page? But they picked it up from Jason who colored it. So it's, uh, this is something also that people want to play at home. You can take images that come in in black and white, and there's lots more images that come in black and white than in color, and you can impose a realistic-looking color table. And, uh, and we were actually we were actually in a weekly space hangout, and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, Emily Lakdawalla taught us all how to do this. Okay. And oh, so cool. Jason actually did one of these in real time during the hangout while Emily was explaining where to get your data and and how to sort of process them together. And he's gotten really good at uh, at doing these color images. Another two cool things about this image, you can see again how thin Saturn's rings are, which is a common student misconception that they're, they're somehow quite thick, but these things are really razor thin. Uh, you can see Titan orbits in the same, you know, the same plane as the rings. Uh, you can see the rings are more than so thin because you can see the black stuff in the southern hemisphere is the, uh, is the shadow of the rings. Uh, so the sun is out there. And then at the top, there's a surprise. 
at the top you can see a white band of clouds, and that white band of clouds is actually broken up a bit and has been studied by the Cassini team because it tells them about the uh, jet stream of higher clouds on Saturn. So this is a, a beautiful image that has a lot of angles to it. And so, so we were happy to run this. It was actually a very deep image. And so let's see, the last one I guess I'll go to is the controversial one, uh, because it appears to be many people not astronomy me on July 10, 2012. Uh, we had uh, something that always is going to generate uh, a lot of um, feedback. Uh, some of it negative is that we had uh, Matt Harding's video on what we titled Happy People Dancing on Private Earth. So this has been an internet phenomena uh, for his previous videos. And so I really like it. And also, I sometimes look to create an APOD out of, um, if we need a keyword linked and I don't know of a good link, then sometimes I'll try to make something an APOD that I can then link to. So I didn't have a good link for the word people. So when I saw this, I thought, not only was this cool, not only does this really, if you had to summarize people on planet Earth with like one image or video, this might not be a bad one, but here's something I could link to the word people in future things, and it would be something that would be cool. So uh, here we have a video that runs, I don't know, a couple of minutes. It's a, it's a dance video. It's a music video. Uh, it seems to bring together the people of Earth. It just has this unified people of Earth spirit to it. But we get lots of, uh, there we go, I can see it uh, on Fraser's. We get lots of people who say, why, this isn't astronomy, um, you know, this isn't, uh, it's not, astronomy is not a picture, what are you doing, cancel my subscription immediately. Uh, but we do know that this doesn't, uh, this doesn't hurt our feed views much. In fact, generally it helps it because there's people who wouldn't normally have known this, uh, about this, who, who see it and who are brought into to our little uh, thing. So it's, I don't know if you want to play it with the music, but uh, it runs for a, a few minutes. I don't think I can, but yeah, okay. it's about it's about five minutes, so. Yeah, so it's probably not. But uh, I advise, you, you can find it all over the internet. It's got now millions of views, uh, so you can find it with us as well. And uh, so I don't want to play piggy with time here, so we'll just go with, uh, with those three images today. Thanks for the opportunity to, to speak about it. And and you got some you got some grumpy attitude from people. Yeah, so we have a discussion board, and uh, maybe half the images were, "Why are you doing this? Cancel my subscription immediately." <laughs> I want my refund. Yeah, send me back some money because this isn't fair. So, yeah. but we're not forcing them to, to look there, and they, they don't have to pay money. So uh, every now and then we go off a little bit off topic, but I think not so much yeah. off topic with this. How one. dare you? Yeah. So, but it's fun. I I, I just love these videos. Oh, that's great. No, 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 it's totally fine. I, I totally approve of doing it. Um, now, Fraser? Hey, yeah. yeah, you had something else. Yeah, yeah I, I, when I was talking about Sharon and these resonances with, with Pluto, Jorge Candeus uh, pointed out that it's actually, I had the situation reversed. And so if anyone's watching this uh, for their term paper, it's actually uh, Sharon going around uh, in, internally and then the others uh, taking a, a one one turn around as Sharon takes multiple turns around. So uh, if you look at the YouTube uh, piece that's uh, linked from the comments, you'll get a better idea of how this all works together. Uh, now, we've got a couple of questions I thought we would, we would run through. Uh, and I think this is a good one for you, Mike. Um, 
Uh, Eli Mendez says, is it just me or is the space industry the next dot-com boom? So what do you think? Do you think we're in a dot-com boom style investment bubble in the space industry? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people are asking that question. I mean, everybody is waiting to see, I mean, is this stuff really all that viable? Is there a lot of money to be made? Certainly a lot of people with deep pockets think there's money to be made, which Jan argues pretty, pretty strongly that there's something there. But yeah, yeah, people are like are waiting to see, I mean, Virgin Galactic, is it going to be able to actually sustain that business model? Are there going to be more than 550 people who want to pay 200 grand to go to suborbital space? Like, are they going to be able to lower their prices to, to actually make it more accessible to more people? Um, yeah, people are, are really looking very carefully at, at these companies. I mean, SpaceX, it was a huge deal that they were able to dock with the space station just a couple months ago because that really shows that, wow, I mean, this is something that had only been done by big, you know, billion-dollar government agency efforts, and here's a, a company that's coming along and doing it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think it would be really interesting to come back in five years and see what all this stuff has led to, but it's still up in the air, so to speak. And I think that, yeah, people have, have been talking about new space and private space flight for years. Like, like again, yeah, Alan pointed out, I mean, it's been, it's been eight years since Spaceship One went up, and everybody was talking then, and it's just around the corner. And it's all, it seems like it's always just around the corner, but it seems like now we are seeing a little bit more real momentum building up. So, so I don't know. I mean, I'll have to wait and see. And I wonder what the crash would look like on the other side if, if it does, all this infrastructure gets built out and then, uh, you know, it's not the same as technology. So, yeah. so I don't know. Well, yeah. what's, what's interesting, too, is some of this stuff is multi-decade efforts. I mean, you talk about all these asteroid mining projects. Uh, yeah, planetary resources, Alan was talking about, they're, they're just, like, getting set to launch some of their spotting scopes, basically, to see what would make good mining targets, and they're not going to be able to actually bring any of the resources back after they mine them for, like, decades, probably. So this is not a conversation that we'll be able to really have for, I don't know, 20 years to see if some of this stuff actually pans out. It's, it's really long-term stuff. Yeah, so it would really be a bubble unfolding in very slow motion. Right, right. Right, and, and one of the books I'm reading is 1493 that goes into what happened after Columbus came to the New World, and uh, the, the book traces how a lot of these joint stock companies that were formed uh, to settle the New World really went out of business and lost a lot of money. And so uh, it, it might be that sort of model where you have a lot of failures before somebody gets that Jamestown settlement going on a near-Earth asteroid. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we apologize to everybody for all of the issues that we had to starting up the show today. I'm, Google Plus was not our, our friend today. But, uh, um, and thanks again to Mark for showing up and reporting on the actual discovery. What a, what a treat to have one of the discoverers of the, uh, of the Pluto moon actually here joining us in the Weekly Space Hangout. And uh, apologies, well, Jason had to go, so we didn't get his story. So I think we'll just start to wrap things up. So before we do, can I want to make sure that people know. Can I ask know. one question before we go? Absolutely. I just wanted to get the, the sort of group's opinion on this, because you mentioned earlier that all of Pluto's new moons is probably going to spark some kind of controversy with the Pluto lovers or Pluto haters. Um, what do you guys who are sort of ensconced in this, what do you think the reaction from the public is going to be that this new moon, should it enhance the status? I mean, I'm asking this rhetorically. I, I know this doesn't actually change things, but I feel like there could be a really interesting fallout. 
Yeah, every time there's a re revelation about Pluto, whether it's, you know, there's carbon monoxide in its atmosphere or it has weather or it has new moons, uh, you get that interest. Uh, people still feel kind of protective toward the, the little guy. Uh, you're right that it doesn't really reflect the status that asteroids can have moons too. The number, of, if Pluto had six or 16 moons, it wouldn't make any difference. But it does uh, illustrate that whether you call it a dwarf planet or a real planet like Pinocchio was a real boy. Uh, Pluto and uh, other things that are out there in the Kuiper belt are definitely more interesting than, than people thought and they're getting more interesting every year. So yes, there will be talk about, well, doesn't this make Pluto a planet? And I think if you think of it as a dwarf planet, that's good enough uh, that people realize that it's a special sort of object. And uh, I, I don't think that there's going to be any revisiting of the decision, but I, I don't think people are going to forget about Pluto or the other dwarf planets either, for sure. But you believe. I can see, I love the poster in your background there. <laughs> the, designation, I'm sorry, the designation comes from the International Astronomical Union, uh, which I think meets in August of this year again. And I was surprised last time when they demoted it. I don't know what's on the agenda for this. It's in China in August. It's possible, from what I know, that they could vote Pluto into planet status again. But uh, we won't know until August. Yeah. All right. Well, now, 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 I think I'll wrap it up. Uh, so, so before I do, though, I want to just give one last plug to to Mark Scholter, and you can actually. Uh, you can circle him. Uh, you can see his name is one of the participants in this hangout. But another place we're going to get more information is from the SETI Institute page. So you can just do a search on Google Plus for SETI Institute, and you'll find their page, and you can and you can follow them. And there's going to be a lot of really interesting news coming out from them. So I just wanted to give that a plug. Uh, Alan Boyle, where do we find more about you? Cosmiclog.com or space.msnbc.com. Perfect. Uh, and Amy, where do we find more about you? AmyShearTitle.com and Google+. And Mike Wall? Uh, just get, go to, to space.com and read, read the stories that we post every day. You're producing an awful lot of them. Yeah, well, there's a lot going on. <laughs> I know. I know the feeling. Um, great. And then uh, and Robert Nemiroff, where can we find out more? apod.nasa.gov. And if a person has a beautiful photograph that they want to contribute to APOD, how do they do it? Look for email addresses there. Okay. There's information on the website. That makes mm -hmm. sense. Great. Well, thank you to everybody who joined us. Thanks to everyone watching. Sorry for the technical difficulties today. We should uh, get this. Well, they'll probably be here next week, too. So, uh, so thanks, everybody. We will see you all next week. Uh, talk to you later. All right. See you, guys. Bye.